Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Corey Leff. And I'm Evan Novi williams And this is the What Happened to All Those Smacks sports business podcast, The Sportacast. Left John Wall Street. For those who don't subscribe to the Sportico Morning Newsletter, you should be. Corey is the author of that every weekday morning. Corey, I think this is your Sportacast debut. Is that right? It is. This is my audio debut. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I'm excited to have you. I think of all the people on staff, you may spend the most amount of your day talking to decision makers in our industry, getting a sense of what they're looking at, what is influencing them. Um, and you write about it for Sportico. So we're going to have a good conversation here. As I teased at the beginning, I want to start with SPACs special purpose acquisition companies. Uh, for people who've been listening to this show for a long time, we were talking about them. It felt like on a daily basis back about a year ago, everybody and their mother that was a prominent sports owner or media executive was investing in these blank check companies looking to acquire and bring public companies in the sports, entertainment, tech, betting space. Things have cooled off a little bit. You've written a little bit about it. Give us a sense right now of where you view this, what what was once a red hot market for SPACs. Well, I think the SPAC market has certainly cooled. Uh, I mean, that's that's become you know pretty evident. Um, there's obviously a, a bunch of different reasons as to why that's that's taking place, but you certainly have far more SPACs filing uh, new SPACs. You certainly have far more or far fewer um, you know c- transactions between SPACs. Um, and I think a lot of it just has to do with the market, right? Um, you know, the the shift from growth to value. Um, obviously, a down market. There's there's very few companies that want to IPO right now. There's just a whole bunch of reasons that that interest has cooled. Um, but also, the vehicle in itself has kind of fallen out of favor, hmm. right? Um, you, you kind of there was a time where um, you know anything tied to a SPAC was going to uh, you know increase upon going public, and and now it's almost the exact opposite, right? To that point, it's funny that. For so long in the early parts of, of, of the SPAC craze, everybody when I was talking to was pointing to DraftKings. Uh, one of the early one of the early SPAC deals in this industry as look at how great that was for DraftKings. They went public, things were going really well, the stock was soaring. Now everybody brings up DraftKings to me, but to the point you're making, it's the opposite point now. It's hey, look at how much the market has cooled on DraftKings, another company that went that went public via SPAC in our world, Genius Sports, also struggling in the public markets. You're right. The, the, it seems as though the public market appetite for a lot of these deals has soured fairly significantly. Do you do you 
you see that as the as the main reason we've seen seen things slow down, or are there other kind of market factors here? Well, I think what's kind of interesting is you just mentioned two companies that I don't really think of as SPAC companies anymore, oh, right? So, okay. um, the, you know, DraftKings went public via SPAC, I don't know, 18 months ago, right? Yeah. Um, it, it was it was quite some time ago. And at the time, like you said, kind of the market was, re- you know, responding to every deal with enthusiasm and that's shifted. Um, but DraftKings at this point, I think is just another public company. And the reason for DraftKings falling out of favor is not because it was a SPAC at one time. Um, the reason is because we've seen the market shift, as we talked about, from uh, growth to value. And, and obviously, DraftKings still loses a lot of money. Um, we've we've seen the sports betting market fall out of favor, right? Um, people Big are time. just not yeah. certain at this point, uh, certainly with, with the money that's being spent on acquisition, that there will be a payoff at the end of the day. And so, or certainly not the payoff that they were expecting, right? So, um, you know, DraftKings is kind of falls at, you know, kind of the center of of a few of those negative trends. But I don't think that the SPAC has anything to do with it, to be honest. Yeah, I I think I meant more that, yeah, for a lot of these companies... This is the, the market is just down right now, right? And it's a lot. I think it's a lot, a little bit less alluring to be jumping into that market right now, right? It's a bear market. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah and and you know, part of it is that you have a lot of these companies that were going the SPAC route were small and not even not even micro. They were like micro cap companies, um, and there's no liquidity in the in the micro cap market right now. So those companies don't trade well. And any company that is you know, kind of ready to go public, if you will, um, has an option to kind of just wait and do it themselves without going the SPAC route. So, Attention, uh, you know, Michael just, Rubin. <laughs> so right. So they just kind of sit tight. Um, and when the market turns again and, and the pipe, re- uh, you know, the pipe market kind of reopens, then we'll see those companies go public. But those are companies that probably should be public, uh, you know, Part of the problem with the with the with the specs was that we had some companies that were not necessarily uh, ready to be public companies. Mm. Two numbers that you put in a, a story of yours recently that jumped out to me. One of them, uh, there's 160 billion dollars of capital right now in specs that are out there looking for uh, looking for targets. Obviously, that is uh, across way more than just the sports world. But give us a sense of of what you think. Given that now, as we're talking about, the market has cooled quite a bit, there's a timeline for a lot of these SPACs to find deals. A lot of those are going to start, the clock is ticking on a lot of those. What do you think ends up happening here? Is there a rush to get deals done? Is there a potential SPAC tie-up to, to, to pool money? Is there just a, a lot of SPACs expiring? What do you think happens in the next, let's say, 12 months as a lot of these deals start to come up on the, on the termination time? You know, I, I don't know that they have. If, if you're a SPAC founder, right? Um, I don't know that you have much of an you know an option other than to go out and find a deal. Um, and sometimes that might not be the best deal, but a deal uh, at least still gives you an opportunity to capture some of the upside. Um, mm. If you're, if, you know, if they hit that deadline, they have they'll lose their entire investment. It's 24 uh, months have- is the deadline, right? Yes, although you can, there are some opportunities to extend and so forth, okay. file for extensions. But um, so you're going to see some some SPACs reaching for deals. You're going to see SPACs, you know, kind of searching outside of their core competency for deals um, because the opportunity to to you know kind of take a uh, you know a hail mary is better than a certain zero, which is what happens if the clock expires. And when you say zero, if I had invested just for the sake of this conversation, a hundred million dollars in a SPAC and 
24, 24 months comes by. I did not get an acquisition done. How much of that money am I, I mean, you're, you're getting most of that back, right? You've, you've paid a bunch of fees that you're not going to get back, but what is the like rough retention rate essentially of, of the investment that comes back if your SPAC fails to find a target? Um, so, you know, typically it's like 2% uh, of the money raised plus 2 million in search costs. Um, but you know, so it's going to depend on, on the size of the spec. Um, but you know, that's whatever the amount is, all of that is gone. gone um, yeah. as, and, and the rest of the money obviously gets returned to, to the investors. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's a certain zero versus, you know, a long shot, you know, even if it's, even if it is just that. You, you teased this a second ago, mentioning SPACs that, that could be looking further afield than their original plan. You wrote about one of these bullhorn SPAC, right? You wrote one of, sure. about, about one of these uh, in the past week, which was originally looking at stuff in our in our industry and then ended up very far afield, right? Totally. They ended up doing a, uh, a deal with a biopharma company that, you know, <laughs> is, is trying to cure and treat cancer. So, you know, it, and, and I talked to, uh, to Rob Stryer, who, who's kind of the sponsor behind that SPAC. And, you know, Rob makes the argument that if the idea is to generate the greatest return for shareholders, it's hard to argue against the fact that biopharma probably presents greater upside than, you know, a a sports ticketing technology or whatever the case may be. Um, I, like, I don't think anybody disputes that. The question is, is, you know, will this thing ever get, you know, approved? And, and uh, obviously the, the risk factor, the, the potential for this not to pan out is, is greater than it, it would be in some other industries. You're also just venturing further afield from the expertise of the people that originally put money in, right? I mean, you, you see from these very specific set of experiences that you get for people who are board members or who are putting in large chunks of capital. And if you have to look further afield, then suddenly the the, the value of their expertise starts to diminish a little bit. Not even, not, no debate at all. 100% yeah. right. One other one before we move on, another number you put in there, the, the redemption rate on SPACs that we've seen recently in deals, 86%. Uh, are, 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 the, are the, that's the number that, of people that are not redeeming their shares, correct? Uh, that, that's correct. Yeah. Um, basically they're, yeah, they're, so walk they're that through for us about, cause I think that's a fascinating number just about how many people who are, have put money into these SPACs are, are thinking a little bit differently about, uh, about it when, when, when the deal comes, comes time. Um, yeah, I mean, Basically, that, that that number is high, right? Back in Super Q4 high, yeah. of, of 2021, the redemption rate was 61%. So you have a large uh, portion of, of investors that are, are are not going forward with the deal once it gets announced. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's, again, it, it's hard for me to say if that's SPAC related or if that's because they're not excited about the deals that are getting announced. Um, but either way, um, it's just that they're, 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 they're not excited about about the deals that are happening and so they're they're opting out. I think that number is is probably not as surprising to people like you who know this industry well than it is to people like me who, who see it and think 86% of people that, that put money into SPACs no longer want to be involved when when, when the SPAC uh, finds, a, finds a target and gets a deal done. To me, that is kind of an indictment of the process, but maybe that number is typically, and you mentioned 61% for, for deals that are a little bit older. Maybe that number is just always higher than, than I think it should be. Yeah, I... 
I, I'm not sure how to respond to that, but yeah, um, it, like you said, the number is pretty high um, because of the, because of the whole warrant issue, right? Um, sure. They're 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 still able to keep their warrants and keep the upside, um, and so unless they love the deal, they they just opt out, keep the warrant, and and move forward. All right, Corey, let's pivot to another area that you've been writing a lot about, which is NFTs, Web 3.0, and the various ways in which this kind of lower tier level of sports leagues, so beyond your big five in the US, et cetera, the way in which they are kind of leaning into innovation and particularly leaning into NFTs and blockchain technology as a way of drawing new interest from fans. Give us a sense of what you're seeing uh, in, in that market. Well, I mean, the DAOs are kind of the uh, the flavor of the month, right? Decentralized so we're seeing, autonomous organizations, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So we're seeing... What is a DAO for people who are listening and are confused? It's basically a, a collective of people that pull money together to buy an ownership stake. And uh, typically, they'll have some sort of voting rights and, and so forth and have an ability to... That's the way it's being sold, right? You can... Uh, you, you can participate in this DAO and have you know a small stake in a team, and the DAO can collectively vote. And the problem is that, as you mentioned, we don't really we're not seeing this on the big five side. Uh, aside from the fact that the rules prevent it, because the valuations are so large, and it would be hard to raise that kind of money, right? Um, for for DAO to raise enough money to take a meaningful stake in a in a big five franchise, but. I think it's a brilliant way, honestly, to not and it doesn't necessarily have to be DAO, but the idea of decentralized ownership and tapping into passionate groups of people. These startup leagues struggle to develop fans and they struggle to um they struggle to to stand out in in a sports in crowded sports markets, right? It's hard to be in, you know. A spring football team in the New York market, and you're like the twelfth most popular franchise in a city with ten franchises. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, so the question is, well, how do you make people care? And that's especially problematic for leagues like these spring leagues, where you don't know any of the players, right? It's not like the NWSL, which is putting be- the best women's players in the world out there, right? Like. You're putting like the fourth string quarterback, uh, which you wouldn't watch in a preseason NFL game. So how do you make somebody go and be excited about that? And I think part of it is like experience, right? Um, in stadium experience. And there's things you can do on that front um, and, and making it more enticing to come out to the game. But in terms of like building a fan base, which is a difficult endeavor for the big four leagues, right? And growing the fan base, um, particularly as we see, you know, fragmentation of media and all those other things. Um, it, you know, I, I really like this idea of of offering ownership stakes to um, somebody referred to them the other day as Fengalis of these <laughs> these crypto universes uh, or these crypto groups. But you know, I, I did a story today on uh, about. The fact that you have all these kind of Web three giants, guys like Bill Lee, who's a, a big Dogecoin guy, he's like uh, very good friends with Elon Musk. Um, but he's like, you know, he tweets something out, and all of a sudden, my, you know, I'm getting retweets and likes from, you know, hundreds of thousands of Doge, the the Doge community, right? Like, yeah. um, it's it's really fascinating. So if these if these Niche sports leagues, upstart sports leagues, are able to tap into some of those groups, and those groups are passionate about 
the the league. I, I think there's a real opportunity to certainly grow interest and awareness. Um, you know, fandom, I guess we'll see, but um, I guess it starts with interest and awareness, right? Yeah, it's interesting to hear you to use the word community, which you used at the beginning there, because that's always been the goal for smaller sports leagues. It's the it's the minor league baseball model, right? It's try to figure out a way to build a community wherever you are. It's one of the reasons why the short-lived AAF, the eight football teams in that league, I think only one of them, the one in Atlanta, was in an NFL market, right? They they were very aware that if they went to places like Omaha, if they went to, the, to places like Birmingham, they might have a better sense of building a community. What you're talking about is essentially the same kind of thing. Instead of it being a geographic central base for the community, it is something very different. It is kind of a a community of people online who are like-minded, who actually have some kind of stake literally and and figuratively in in the direction of the franchise. My question on all this stuff, because I'm I dip my toe a little bit into Web3. I have not certainly taken the plunge like a lot of people have. It seems like the minute you start having these conversations, you're alienating just a huge swath of people who might be interested, let's take one one of the leagues you wrote about recently, the big three, the, the the basketball franchise, which is, you know, utilizing a lot of former NBA players, some big names playing a different version of of the game. There's probably a lot of people out there for whom the idea of seeing these guys competing basketball after they're done playing in the NBA is kind of interesting, but their eyes glaze over the minute you say Dow, the minute you mention kind of what the, whatever the barrier to entry is to get into this community, if the community is, is based on the blockchain. Uh, I, I am curious if you are, as a league, if you are diving into this world you know, with both feet, if you are potentially just really limiting the amount of people that might be interested in you in, in what you're doing, I, you know, I don't see it that way. Um, I I don't think there's a, that anything they're doing would turn me off, right? So if you sell a stake in you know a big three team to a Billy, uh, and all of a sudden the Doge community is adopting it and talking about the league on on social media and posting memes, and maybe they're buying T-shirts now because there's IP rights. Uh, you know, Doge, the Doge aliens or whatever <laughs> you know that the, the team is. Um, you know, and now people are wearing that around town. Like, I don't, I don't see how that could be a bad thing. It's not impacting the game, right? Like, these aren't. I think that's part of the there, there's there decentralized ownership does not really necessarily mean that they are going to be changing the outcome of anything on the court, right? Um, decentralized ownership is really talking about having an an opportunity to participate in the discussion, having a, a an opportunity to vote. The big three is unique uh, and cool because. Uh, they are actually giving these people a chance to participate in the financial upside. If yeah. a team is sold, uh, they're having an ability to tap into, like I said, IP rights. If they're able to monetize them, they can go out and do that. So there is some kind of uh, ownership-like rights, if you will. But at the end of the day, they're not picking the players. They're not you know, impacting the game at all, not the presentation. They're just there kind of along for the ride. Um, and it's a way to better engage the fan, which again, I think as we talk about moving forward, like how do you engage fans that are not necessarily watching linear television? Well, this could be a way. It's funny that the, the, some of these structures essentially do exist entirely in, in European soccer leagues, right? There, there's tons of 
of British soccer teams in lower tiers that are community owned in which fans get to vote on executive decisions. They get to and uh, sharing the financial upside is, is a slightly different proposition. And I understand that. But in some ways, this is an ownership structure in, in, in the UK and in other parts of Europe that has been actually fairly successful in doing exactly the thing that we're talking about, which is which is creating a community, making people feel as though they are not just fans watching something that they like to watch, but feel as though they are part of uh, 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 of an entertainment asset. Um, so yeah, in, in some ways, this is a, a more technological and, and maybe more open version of of at least a structure that we have seen in sports for, for for a long time. Yeah, and I think you know the one thing like the European soccer fans, these fans have proven to be rabid, right? Like these communities are very engaged on platforms like Discord, and um, you know, so I, I think there's a real opportunity here to tap into to audiences now. You know, not everyone who is a Doge believer is going to adopt the big three, but there sure. is certainly a portion of the Doge community that also likes basketball. And those are the people that I think you have a chance to really convert. Yeah, I'm going back to the point I made earlier. The uh, I, I'm I'm not really in the big three demographic as it is because I'm not a huge basketball person. I find it hard to believe at this point in my life I will ever root for a team that is named after a cryptocurrency. They're not. I, that's the thing. They're not named after a cryptocurrency. Oh, I thought you called them the the Doge. No, no, I was just uh, <laughs> you know just just kind of um, no. That, yeah, no. They're they're still the aliens. Yeah. There'll be a Doge logo on the alien jersey. Okay. Um, no different than, you know, a Weeble jersey sure. patch yeah, on the yeah. Nets jersey. Yeah. Um, but, but no, no, no. The, this, they don't, it doesn't change the team, the team name or anything else. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think it's, a, I, I'm, I'm very intrigued by, again, getting back to the article I wrote today, NFTs with, with actual utility. And I think that's, maybe that's why I'm so excited about the opportunity for decentralized ownership is that so much of this, kind of crypto enthusiasm lives in a virtual space. And so the opportunity to rally those communities around something that's actually real and that they can support, uh, whether, like I said, buying a t-shirt or attending a game or watching the game on television is different than, than the experience they're currently getting. So, so before we move on to that point, uh, you were one of the first people I knew that was buying and looking at Top Shot. I'm curious, a, a year later, 15 months later, you look back on that experience. Have you looked at the ones that you bought? Did you sell all the ones you bought? Have you accessed your money? What, what is your, what, what is the full extent of, of your Top Shot experience? So I would say that I was more of a seller than buyer on Top Shot. I would buy okay. packs. I would get a, a like a, you know, a valuable uh, NFT and then sell it. And so I had accumulated like a couple hundred dollars uh, in my, I'm not, I was not a heavy player by any means, <laughs> um, but I, I accumulated probably like $500 in, in what I would say, like, I guess were profits. Now, I might have made a mistake. I have that. That's to be determined. I've since reinvested those profits in all day. And okay which is the NFL version. Okay. Cause my thinking was I could get in on the first series of all day. Like I've always thought from the beginning on top shot, it's hard for me to envision digital assets like that holding value down the line. But like the first series of them could, if NFTs really are a thing in 50 years, having the first series of NF of NBA top shots, I thought would hold value. And so my thinking was like, okay, well now we're into like the second and third and whatever years of top shot, but we're still only in the first year of all day. I'll just pump all my money into all day. 
problem is <laughs> all that hasn't really been marketed yet. Okay. So, it, in, and most of the releases to date, um, possibly all of them have been limited to like a closed community. So, like all day has like no value. I am hopeful. My investment thesis is that come NFL season, there will be a lot of marketing around all day. The valuation, the values of those NFTs will increase, and then I can get my money back. But right now, I, I'm not underwater, but I've. I'm basically uh, I'm, I'm rich in in, in football highlights. <laughs> and as a quick disclaimer, this is not a show for uh, for financial advice. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, no, no, please don't take that. As, <laughs> so as Corey, let, let's 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 round it out, uh, close it out with with one last one here. Some news that we broke on Sportico uh, on Monday morning. Apollo Global Management, one of the biggest private equity firms in the world, preparing a $1.25 billion offer to Liga MX. It would be an investment in a not yet created uh, me, uh, media company in which, which would hold all of Liga MX's international media rights. Apollo looking to give $1.25 billion for 20% of that company and to share in 20% of the company's profits over the next 50 years. Just the latest we've seen of, of, of private equities kind of increasing interest in not just buying stakes in professional sports, which is happening in the U.S. a lot, but also, as we're seeing in soccer leagues around the world, investing in media companies, giving a lot of upfront cash and, and an opportunity to share in the media rights moving forward. What are your takeaways from from this potential Apollo offer? Um. That's a good question. The I think it's interesting on a couple different fronts. Uh, first being that it's kind of the first one we've seen in North America, at least since kind of this flood has has started, which is which is like interesting. It's something that you know I wrote about probably about a month ago when we started to see a lot of these kind of league level investments, and I think it's interesting that it's largely a bet on U.S. media rights, right? Isn't that you know so exactly? Right, um, yeah. We're not seeing uh, you know private equity necessarily invest in, in Danish soccer because they don't believe there's going to be a a tremendous payoff in American meteorites or US meteorites but for Liga MX there certainly could be so um I, I, I was I thought it was interesting that you know it was kind of the first US league to, we've seen in a while um not the else? first North American league to try it though if you remember the Pac-12 under Larry Scott this yes. was their original plan was to was to spin off the Pac-12 media rights into its own separate holding company and he was looking at and talking to private equity firms about investments there it didn't happen for a number of reasons Larry Scott is no longer leading the Pac-12 but this model this specific model of hey we can get money up front now from a private equity firm if we're willing to share in the media upside for the next 10 years, or in this case, the next 50 years, that at least has been thought about and tried in the U.S. before, just not as successfully. Yep. I thought, you know, one, another thing that was pretty interesting was, um, you know, it comes at a time where the markets aren't good, right? So an opportunity to diversify into into a sports league, I think, is, is kind of an interesting play. Um, not particularly different, but interesting nonetheless. Um, and and just that, that was something that I had kind of taken notice of. I thought also... Um, you mentioned a lot of you know investing at the team level. We have I don't know if we've talked about, but you know the again the talk about diversification. The ability to invest at a league level allows you to remove yourself from a lot of the potential negatives on a year by year, team by team basis. Because as we expect, the media rights for Liga MX and most other leagues will continue to rise. Uh, so I, I think you know all of those things are pretty interesting. I don't follow the the soccer media rights. Um, you know, all that much, but I, you know, certainly the idea that 
League MX is the most watched soccer league in the world. People believe that the in, U.S. In North America. In, excuse yeah. me. Yes. The, sorry. Yes. Uh, the, you know the fact that people believe that with the the World Cup coming, that soccer is on the the verge of a you know another bump in the U.S. I think there's a lot of reasons to get excited about. The demographics are interesting, right? Um, the you know growing Latino audience in the U.S. There, I think there's just a lot of reasons to to like Liga MX and uh, certainly uh, Apollo must as well. One other thing I'll say on this: um, there have been conversations in North America for a few years now about MLS and Liga MX potentially merging. Uh, to think about this deal in, in that context, the way I read this is that if you are a advocate or you want the two leagues to merge, I think this deal, if it does get executed between Apollo and Liga MX, makes that significantly less likely. The way I understand all this is that uh, part of the pitch for the Liga MX MLS merger is that MLS can bring a lot of expertise in terms of monetizing media and other commercial rights, particularly in the U.S. As you mentioned, Liga MX, way more popular in the U.S. as a TV property than MLS is. Um, But that MLS was going to bring that opportunity to Liga MX. The more that Liga MX can on its own, and when I say on its own, I mean also with with the assistance of a partner like Apollo, the more that they can monetize their own rights without MLS, uh, the less likely I think it is for that to be appealing for, for the Mexican soccer team. So, so another fold in this whole conversation is what this potentially means for the long rumored, long discussed business tie up between MLS and Liga MX. Yeah, again, I don't profess to be a soccer expert, but from what I understood was that it was going to be a tough sell anyway, uh, to ever get the full merger, right. yeah. but that, um, you know, and I'm not sure that this prevents the increased cooperation between those leagues, the increased marketing between the two leagues, playing each other, tournament in-season tournaments, that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, it, it may be putting them on equal, on closer equal footing financially uh, allows more of that. All right, Corey, let's wrap it up here. I'll give you the last word. Um, give me something that you're talking to people about, something you're hearing in your phone calls coming up that, that, that excites you, intrigues you, that we might see in the uh, John Wall Street pages sometime soon. Um, gosh, that's a so I, I got a, a story coming. It'll probably be drop, I think maybe Wednesday, maybe when no Wednesday or next week. Um, but talking about a trend in ticketing, unified ticketing, um, and uh, kind of you're seeing a shift and the shift started pre pandemic, but there seems to be a shift in terms of how people are buying and consuming tickets, um, less in season tickets, less in group sales, much more in single game inventory. Um, and so you kind of have this dynamic where, uh, teams, which are already kind of understaffed because they haven't reloaded post pandemic, um, are, are now kind of shifting a strategy where, which requires less people because you're putting all of your kind of sales strategies under a single umbrella and a single bucket. Um, it's the elimination of the, the, the primary and the secondary consumer, which is really now the one and the same. There's, there's kind of a whole bunch of different dynamics playing in, but basically uh, part of this story would, you know, was NBA ticket sales um, while revenue was up this year 10%. I don't want to get my numbers backwards here. One, I think revenue is up 10%. Sales volume actually declined 7%. Hmm, and single game sales was like up 
30 plus percent. Um, while group sales was down 35%. So you have like, there's, there's certainly, and some of that has to do with the pandemic and, and the uncertainty of last season. But some of this stuff is, is kind of longer term trend. Um, that is, that is driving teams increasingly across the sports ecosystem. This is not an NBA specific problem. It's just, I happen to, to get the data, um, to, to change their approach to, to how games, you know, tickets are being sold. And it kind of gets back to a story I talked about recently in terms of dynamic pricing is, is increasing in terms of, uh, you know, you're seeing dynamic pricing more often teams, you know, altering the prices based on, uh, demand, demand and, and a whole bunch of other factors. So, uh, I, I've spent a lot of time in ticketing recently. Right on. Well, for folks who want to read that and other stories like it, just subscribe to the Sportico morning newsletter. You will hear uh, Cora read Corey every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. He is Corey Leff on Twitter at Howie Long Short. I am Evan Novi Williams on Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. The Sportacast is produced by Matt Whitehurst. Shout out to Matt. Our digital media editor, Cora Veltman, wants you to know that you can follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Sportacast. What Scott says will soon be, we'll see, the Sportico Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.